It's really the families that are doing the work of reintegrating their loved ones as they come out of prison from day one. When you come out of prison, you basically have nothing. And you're out there on the street, often sometimes with no place to live. So what would any of us do in that situation? We would, we would um, get back in touch with our families. That's the voice of UC Berkeley's David Harding, talking about his new book, On the Outside, with Jeffrey Morinoff and Jessica Weiss, which examines the lives of 22 people as they pass out of the prison gates and back into society. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. My name is Sarah Grossman, and I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, I spoke with Professor Harding, a UC Berkeley sociologist and a member of the Haas Institute's Economic Disparities Faculty Research Cluster. His book examines the challenges faced by former prisoners as they try to find work, housing, and stable communities. I spoke with him about the book and why reentry in the U.S. is just so difficult for the majority of former prisoners. This is our conversation. Professor Harding, thank you so much for joining us on Who Belongs. Thanks for having me. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about the impetus for On, on the Outside? There's been a lot of research about mass incarceration already. So what new topics do you bring to the conversation or findings? Sure. So uh, at the point we started um, the project and, and writing the book, a lot had been written about mass incarceration uh, and the impacts of imprisonment on individuals, on communities, on our democracy. Um, but not a lot had been written about the experience of reentry. Like, what is it actually like for people day to day when they come out of prison and try to construct new lives for themselves? Uh, and how does the process of being in prison impact that? And what are the factors that lead some people to be successful at that and others not so successful, either ending up back in the criminal justice system or ending up very much on the margins of society, you know, homeless, for example. And what kind of findings did you discover in the course of these, this book? So the thing that um, it is the biggest theme throughout the book is the role of families in, in reintegration. It's really the families that are doing the work of reintegrating their loved ones as they come out of prison from day one. When you come out of prison, you basically have nothing. I mean, you probably have your glasses. You might have two weeks of any prescription medication. You have the clothes you're wearing. Um, maybe you'll have an ID, maybe not. Um, and so, and you're out there on the street, often sometimes with no place to live. So what would any of us do in that situation? We would, we would, um, get back in touch with our families. Uh, and so the families are providing that day-to-day -day material support, um, not just in the period right after imprisonment, right after release, but also oftentimes in the long term as people struggle to get into the labor market. Um, and they're also doing the work of reconnecting people socially to churches, to, into you know social networks and larger um, friendship networks and things. Uh, one of the things that's was most surprising about the study is that we often assume that when someone comes out of prison, they're just going to go back to where they were before, right? This sort of cycling in and out of prison. And we actually found that that's not the case, that the majority of people coming out of prison are going back to new neighborhoods and new communities after release. Um, but what they do have ties to is their, is their family. And obviously that leads to different outcomes compared to people who have really strong family support and people that don't. Is there a way that the government or the state can step in as and offer what families offer and kind of close that gap? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things that could be done. I mean, one thing is we could do more to help people in prison reconnect or maintain contacts with their families in the first place. 
know, we build our prisons far out in rural areas often, very hard to maintain that contact. Um, visiting policies, expensive phone calls, things like that make it hard. Um, but uh, for those who don't uh, have family support after release, oftentimes they do rely on government or even private charities. So, you know, living in homeless shelters or treatment programs or programs like the Salvation Army, uh, relying on soup kitchens and food stamps for food uh, just, to, just to get by to meet those basic material needs. The research you discuss in the book followed more than 20 formerly incarcerated people after their release. Could you share a typical story of um, of such a person? Obviously, every story is different, but can you kind of describe that process? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'll tell you about um, one of our subjects who we call Randall in the book. These are all, all pseudonyms, of course. Uh, he had he The first thing he told me when I met him in prison uh, about a week before release was he said, I've got nine felonies, you know, firearms, drug selling, car theft, uh, and he was just really stressed out about what was going to happen when he came out. Uh, he had experienced a lot of trauma as a youth and, and, and a young adult um, uh, and around um, child abuse, sexual abuse. His revelation to that his family had sort of broken a lot of ties with his family. Um, some of his family members were still involved in uh, drug use, alcohol use. Um, he was very worried about coming into coming into too much contact with them. But on the other hand, they were the only people he he was going to be able to rely on. He came out and um, had a very unstable living situation. He was in drug treatment programs, homeless shelters. He was living on the streets in the dead of winter in Detroit. Um, and eventually he found doing couch surfing, you know, with different friends and, and people he could, he, distant family members, but he would quickly kind of overstay his welcome and move on. Uh, he eventually found a kind of permanent, more permanent home with a distant family member um, uh, and sort of became a little bit more settled, but he really struggled to find any sort of job. He had actually had work experience. Before uh, prison, he had worked uh, at a fast food restaurant as a manager, for example. Uh, but with his criminal record and in the neighborhood he was living in, in Detroit, jobs were very far away. It would be, be a whole day's trek just to go and apply for a few jobs. Eventually, he connected with a new um, romantic partner whom he met in um, a drug treatment program. She was also uh, a former addict. And um, they eventually started living together. She was able to help him apply for lots of jobs using the internet, you know, going online, which he, he didn't have any ex experience with. And he eventually, three years later, after he got out, he uh, eventually found a job as a line cook in a, in a diner type restaurant. And that's wh where we left him. And is so, that kind of a typical story that it takes three yeah. years? So. Not everybody took three years necessarily. Uh, often people, uh, to, to find work. Um, often people found work and then lost work um, and so struggled with the same material problems but um, for slightly different reasons. I think what is typical is that experience of trauma prior to prison uh, which in many ways sort of led to his the crimes uh, and the decisions he made that got him in prison, this, the struggle to sort of reconnect with family 
um, the difficulty of navigating uh, high poverty neighborhoods where jobs are scarce and opportunities to do other things are quite plentiful. Um, so that's, that's the sense in which Randall is, is typical. I'm curious um, with this anecdote and with, with others, obviously there's interpersonal biases that come to play um, when it comes to finding jobs and housing, but what about structural uh, barriers to, to finding housing instability? Yeah, so the, I mean, one big one is the, the criminal record itself um, and the stigma that that carries. Um, many people sort of struggled with what, you know, how should I present myself with this criminal record? To an employer, should I tell them up front, and maybe then I just won't even get considered? Should I hide it and then try to tell them later after maybe get the job, but then I might be fired? Um, and that also applies to housing. Um, landlords are doing um, criminal record checks. Also, the other thing that happens to people when they go to prison is, you know, because you're just sort of plucked out of society almost on a moment and have very little ability to have any sort of contact or manage your affairs, is you often end up with a lot of debts. If you, you know, you have back rent to pay because you just disappeared and the landlord's wondering what, um, you know, haven't, haven't you paid your rent? You can't keep up with your bank accounts, um, your credit cards, uh, anything like that. And so these days, a lot of people are doing um, credit checks, of course, with land, landlords are doing it and employers are doing it and, and people who've been in prison often have very poor credit as well, in part because of their involvement in the criminal justice system. Uh, so that's one structural thing. I mean, I think the fact that people are moving to high poverty neighborhoods, we would also think of as kind of a structural factor, that these are the, the communities, both where they're from, um, but also um, that are going to accept them and where all of our institutions are, like drug treatment programs and homeless shelters. Um, in particular, where they're going to be located. And so the kind of the mismatch between locations where people are, the difficulty with transportation, um, and then, you know, and, and the distance to jobs is, is a real barrier, too. Are there any specific policy measures you could envision that would help uh, solve some of those challenges? Well, I mean, I think we could be smarter about where we place the services and the housing that we are providing to people um, and, uh, and and be more sensitive to these, these questions of, of transportation and location of jobs. Uh, certainly, it's also um, some of the subjects described being on parole is kind of a full-time job, especially the first few weeks after you're out. You know, you've got to go see your parole officer often. They've got all these programs and, and treatment things and services they want you to check in with. If you combine that with not having any transportation and trying to get around a whole metro area to meet all those requirements, it's, it's actually quite hard to <laughs> find time to look for a job and to, and to reconnect with family. Um, so there's the question of how we do parole. Um, I think one thing we could do is we could do a much better job preparing people for release. So when we talked to people, part of the study was interviewing people before they were released, sometimes a few days, sometimes up to a month. And you know, once they had the parole date, they could enter the study. And they certainly described being kept busy in prison, you know, doing a lot of make work jobs like, you know, cleaning, um, gardening, things like that. But they didn't feel like they had the opportunity in prison to really get prepared for release in terms of like, you know, educational goals or job training. And it's a real missed opportunity because 
people are just sitting around doing mostly nothing. Um, and um, prison isn't the ideal place to, to do schooling, um, but uh, it's, it, it is a missed opportunity to use that time productively. Could you give some concrete examples of, of the type of training or preparation you'd like to see? Uh, well, I think we could, th- there is a focus these days on basic literacy and numeracy skills. That's where a lot of it comes in. Um, but uh, and then helping people with GEDs, but people talked about wanting to be able to take college courses or uh, job training programs for jobs that are actually plentiful and appropriate for their skill level and also appropriate for their criminal record, right? So a lot of, of jobs are, are forbidden for people with a criminal record due to various either laws or occupational licensing rules. Uh, and so selecting those um, carefully. So for example, a barber would be a, a pretty reasonable thing you could train someone how to do in prison, um, but there are kind of fitness, quote unquote, <laughs> requirements for being a barber for some reason. Um, and sometimes people aren't able to pass those or to be able to effectively jump through those hoops um, to get their barber license um, to do that kind of work. Um- you talked a bit about family, and I'm curious if there are any other factors that kind of um, separate the successful reentry person from the unsuccessful one, and what are those other factors? The big thing we noticed, so there was kind of like three levels. There were the people at the who were most disadvantaged with regard to family who really didn't have any family support, and they were the ones who were just struggling literally day-to-day to feed and house themselves. There was another group whose families were, were able to provide that food and housing for them, often at somewhat of a strain on the family itself. These are mostly poor families to start with. Then there was a third group whose families were a little bit better off, particularly those if there's a lot of people in the family who are working. Um, that sort of did two things. First, it gave people a little bit of a kind of time to stop and focus and figure out what they wanted to do now that they were out. They weren't sort of immediately needing to help contribute to food or, or the rent or something like that. And they didn't have to sort of jump out and start doing like day labor work or something like that. Uh, and really sort of figure out kind of, okay, you know, do I want to do some job training now that I'm out? Or do I want to go back to school? Um, it's providing that sort of th- that foundation time. And then also those kind of more advantaged families were able to connect their loved ones back into job networks. And the people we saw who actually ended up with stable living wage jobs, it was always because a family member had used their social networks to connect them to something. Uh, so, you know. Uh, so it fundamentally is family is the yeah, that's, dividing line. Yeah, th- that's what we saw, yeah. And both what support you have and who, what's, who your family is in terms of what they're able to, to provide. Um, I also wanted to ask about kind of the methodology of how you follow these people and also you're an educated white man with a PhD. Did you have trouble relating to people or getting them to trust you and how did you foster these relationships? Yeah, that was something we were really concerned about when we started the study, uh, especially because we were starting the study in the prison, right? So it was very easy for us to be perceived as somehow connected to the prison uh, as well. And so there going to be questions of trust just based on that, let alone all the social distance issues that you just mentioned. Um, I think what was most important in in doing this was just building relationships with people over time. So because we interviewed them multiple times and we followed them over time, uh, 
over time, we, we developed uh, relationships with people where they started to reveal more and more. And they, in some cases, they started to kind of go back and say, hey, you know, when I first met you, I thought X, Y, and Z, so I was sort of telling you this. And that, was, that wasn't quite the case. I thought, you know, I needed to tell you that for, you know, in case you were connected to parole or the prison or something like that. Actually, the person who most did that was the person who was most similar to me demographically, uh, middle-class um, white man. But um, so that was important in building trust. And I think for a lot of a lot of our subjects, we did build these relationships over time where they they didn't really have anybody else necessarily to confide in, um, and they had never had the experience of someone. In a, from a more advantaged position, actually interested in what they were experiencing, and so that I think that's what kind of turned things around. So you know, because we were separate from all their other social networks, you know, if they told us things, we would wouldn't have much way of getting that information out about them anyway. Um, so, uh, and then the second issue you you raised was like, how do you even just keep track of people, you know, given all the housing instability we just talked about. Um, we used a, a couple sort of standard social science techniques. So one thing we did was in our first interview, we asked for the, a list of people who would know who they were, where they were. And, and so if we did lose track of them, we could contact those people and say, hey, you know, do you know where so-and-so is? Can you put us in touch? We were paying people for the interviews, for their time. Um, and in, in many cases, people would contact us before their next interview was due because they were just such in, in, in such dire need of the money for the interviews. Um, and, and then the other thing we did was once they came out, we, you know, we did get to know often the people in their household uh, a little bit, and that sort of helped. Um, and then I guess the last thing was almost all of them gave us permission to access their uh, parole records. So anytime the parole officer knew where they were, even if we hadn't been updated, we could look at those records and get the most recent information. And that helped us find some people also, because they were very good as, as long as they weren't getting back into trouble or starting using drugs again or something like that. They're very good at keeping their parole officer informed because of the consequences of not doing so, potentially having to go back to prison. Um, in addition to these more qualitative interviews, um, you also did a large quantitative study. Can you talk a little bit about that, how you did it, and the main findings from it? Uh, sure. So what we did for that is we we worked with the Michigan Department of Corrections. Uh, one of our research team members was actually working in the headquarters in Lansing, Michigan, in the state capitol, uh, to extract data from all their databases. So we selected a, uh, the, actually the population, so everybody who was um, paroled in Michigan in the year 2003, and then we followed them over time. And for a third of them, we actually went through and coded up in detail all their parole agents' case notes about where they were living and who they were living with, which is how we got all this information about. And what does that neighborhoods. mean to code it for people Well, uh, so, we, so we just looked at it. It would say, like, so-and-so is living here. Here's the address. We would enter that in our database. Mm. Um, and then we could use that address to, quote-unquote, geocode it, right, to it attach it to see what neighborhood is that, what are the characteristics of that neighborhood, and then also we took great care to write down like what household are they living in, whose household is it, is it their own household, is it their mother, their aunt, are they living with a child, an adult child, um, who else is in the household, um, and so that's how we're able to sort of track a lot of this residential instability. And basically the way we use that information in the book is to provide kind of 
the big picture, right? Like, what are the rates of employment? What are, you know, how often do people move? Something that wouldn't be very good to measure with only 20 people, right? Um, but if we have over 3,000 people, then we can get a pretty good measure of those kind of things when we aggregate them all together. And what do those numbers reveal to you? Uh, well, the residential instability number is just shocking. Um, you know, people who study uh, housing instability, housing insecurity, and homelessness think moving once per year is residentially unstable. And the median person in our data was moving four times per wow. year. And then when we looked at this more carefully, the other thing that we noticed was that because we could see their residences, so we could see where are they moving from and where are they moving to. A lot of times, about a third of the time, these moves were linked to their criminal justice contact. So they, they would have a parole violation, um, say they would have a dirty urine or um, contact with the police in some way, and instead of necessarily just sending them back to prison, um, the parole officer would have them go to a treatment program or to a halfway house or a residential reentry center, as they called it in Michigan. And so there was a lot of kind of cycling in and out of those things, which created a lot of residential instability. And going to one of those actually in, you know, increases the probability of you moving later. So it sort of disrupts the ties you had to whatever household, private household you were in before as well. Do you think this kind of uh, hyper, I don't know if it's hyper surveillance, but really heavy surveillance after re-entry is actually can be harmful to people trying to make it? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, if we're, if, if we're trying to observe everything somebody does, uh, we're, of course, going to find them slipping up in small ways. Um, and, and then that's going to, those things are going to get recorded, compounded. Um, and, you know, so, think, you know, a lot of things that are parole violations are things that um, would either be very minor things crimes and for someone who wasn't on parole or perfectly legal um, like what like drinking alcohol for example Um, or um, you know move moving (laughs) you know moving residences or having contact with the with the police even if like you're walking down the road and the police stop you and and ask you what you're doing um, that's contact with the police Really, and if you don't tell your parole officer about it, and they find out of it, then then that can be not always. You know, the parole officer has discretion. Um, that can be, you know, lead to a parole violation, um, especially if it starts to combine with other things. Um, you know, contact with other people who are on parole or ha- who have criminal records, things like that, uh, or you know, drug use, which is illegal, but not something we would send people to prison for, right? Um, I'm, I'm curious because you've said um, that family is obviously the most important factor in, in success, but what about the relationship with the parole officer since they're kind of the face of the state? Mm-hmm. Is there a way that that uh, relationship can be improved or that system? Yeah. In what ways? Um, I think what's happened, this is more of a historical perspective, not directly from our data, but uh, people who have studied parole have noticed that, you know, along with mass incarceration and just sort of the ramping up of our criminal justice system more generally and greater punitiveness has come a change in what parole is. So a shift from parole officers being sort of both social workers and law enforcement to them being almost entirely law enforcement, right? Them being held responsible at the end of the day for any sort of crimes that their parolees commit. Not, and not necessarily responsible for any other aspect of their well-being. 
Oh, interesting. So, and that's the greatest fear. Uh, for a parole officer, you know, we got to know um, not many parole officers directly, but a lot of people who worked at the Department of Corrections who explained these systems to us, you know, the biggest fear if you're supervising somebody is that they will have done something that was sending a signal that you should have reacted to, and then they do something serious later, right? That's how you're going to be a failure at your job. Which So parole, the whole system makes the parole officers very risk-averse. Any signal of a problem, you know, if they don't sort of clamp down on it, then um, even if only 1 out of 10 or 1 out of 20 times that's actually going to be predictive of committing a serious crime, uh, you know, the potential is they're going to be held responsible, especially given that they may be supervising dozens or hundreds of people. I think that's interesting, and it, on a rational level, it totally makes sense. Is is there a way that the system itself can be shifted so that the relationship is less risk-averse and more towards people's well-being? I mean, I think we could we could change both the, the training and the orientation of parole officers um, and the expectations we have on them and what it means to be successful. Um, you know, they could be doing things like building relationships with service providers so they can provide better referrals and more accurately place people with the services they need. We could be spending more money on providing people with services like, you know, some sort of transitional housing, for example, to have that that sort of foundation of stability right at release versus, you know, doing paying all this money for many, many drug tests or, uh, you know, home visits and things like that, the, the surveillance side that's the dominant part of parole these days. Um, looking ahead, are there any developments that are happening now that people should be paying attention to in terms of uh, prisoner reentry? But I think people are starting to wake up, especially here in California, about, you know, when we do send people to prison, almost all of them come home at some point. And we are starting to wake up and say, what can we do to better prepare people? Um, so there's, there's movements to provide more access to college education in prison in California. Um, and there's movements to rethink, you know, how do we punish um, parole violators? Like, do we necessarily send them back to prison? Uh, are there things that we could do that are going to be more constructive? Um, there's a bill in the legislature right now that would provide, quote unquote, good time for parole to actually reward people on parole for doing positive things like completing drug treatment programs, going back to school, um, go, getting uh, job training. So as you do those things, as you accrue that quote-unquote good time by doing the things you're supposed to be doing to rebuild your life, your, your, the time you have on parole gets shorter. Um, that's the idea of the bill. Um, and the, we could save, you know, then we're saving money on the end of less supervision time, and we can be sort of reinvesting that back into um, better preparing people and supporting people in release. Um, going back to the um, qualitative study you did, or, yeah, qualitative, mm -hmm. um, what percentage of the people that you followed actually kind of successfully stayed out of prison? Um, or made it, you know? Yeah, yeah, I mean... It depends what we mean by made it. Mm -hmm. um, the number of people who really, at the end of the three years we were following them, had kind of stable jobs that were able to support themselves and their families was probably t 10 to 15%. Um, 
If made it means simply staying out of prison, never going back to prison again, slightly over 50%. So we followed people as they um, as they went back into prison uh, and then interviewed them in prison. And then if they came out again in our study period, uh, inter- kept interviewing them in the community. Um, so I guess by that measure, about, yeah, about half, which is about what the national So those outcomes is. are not very good, though? No, the, outco- the outcomes are not, not very good, especially if we focus on, um, on, on recidivism as the, as the key measure. Yeah. Um, moving specifically to the book, can you tell us a little bit about the cover? It's quite unique. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so the, the centerpiece of the cover is a painting um, called Troubled Man, which is by an artist whose name is Curtis Chase, who is currently in prison in the Muskegon Correctional Facility in Michigan. And he's been uh, in prison since he was a teenager. Um, he had a life sentence as a juvenile. Uh, and he, we found this image, this painting, um, and the digital version of it through the Prison Creative Arts Project, uh, which is run by the University of Michigan, and works with prisons in Michigan to bring not just visual arts like painting, uh, but also uh, poetry, you know, creative writing, um, theater into the prisons um, and provide that to, uh, to prisoners. And he's been painting uh, for many years now and sort of developed that skill that he never knew he had uh, as a child and an adolescent. I mean, he basically went to prison at the, in late adolescence and has been there ever since. Uh, and so we have a, a one, one, one other of his paintings also on our the website for our book. Uh, but he's been quite successful in, in uh, selling some of his paintings as well. And for listeners who want to read your book, how can they find it? Uh, you can go to the website for our book, which is on theoutsidebook.us, um, and you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those places. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes our conversation with UC Berkeley professor David Harding, who spoke with us about his new book, On the Outside, Prisoner Reentry and Reintegration, with co-authors Jeffrey Morinoff and Jessica Weiss. Find this episode and others at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. Thank you.